podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome back to that Chelsea podcast. It's Sunday morning and I still don't really know how to feel about what went on last night. Uh, to help me, I guess, go through and digest what we saw last night, I'm joined for the first time this season by Mr. Daniel Charles at Sunday Chelsea. Daniel, how are we doing, my man? As well as can be, uh, given what happened. It, it, it has felt worse, sadly, as time has gone on, but I think as should be the case we should really dissect the positives and the progression with this team but yeah it's just it's the weird thing about football because I think most of us would have taken that result at the start of the the evening but football has a cruel way of of making you um regret wanting that in the first place so uh yeah but what we're gonna do we have to move on yeah, no, indeed, indeed. As I always do, guess uh, I get them to give themselves a plug. So, Daniel, tell people where they can find you and all your stuff. Uh, easiest way is Son of Chelsea across all platforms, really. Um, at YouTube, Son of Chelsea, posting regular content. Then uh, TikTok, Instagram, and of course, X at Son of Chelsea as well. So that's that's the easiest way to find my work around Chelsea. Lovely, lovely stuff. All those links will be in the description below. Right, Chelsea took on Arsenal last night and drew to all. I think, as Danny said, before the game, most of us would have taken that. I said on the pod a couple of weeks ago uh, when I asked a question about, you know, if he's looking at the, the fixtures coming ahead, I said I'd be delighted with a draw against Arsenal. But this is Sunday morning and I'm not delighted with a draw. We'll get into that boy. It did end Arsenal's uh, three-year, three-season winning run at Sanford Bridge. Um, right. Daniel, just let's get to it. For 75 minutes, I think that was the best Chelsea performance in a big six league game I can remember for many years. Obviously, we didn't win one last year. <laughs> um, and the season before, but we won three of those and two were against Spurs. One was against Arsenal and for the Grace. And they were, you know, good performances. They were very, you know, controlled, etc. But I think the level of opposition we were playing yesterday was a step up from those teams we played back then. And we were also in a stronger state back then to where we were now. So I genuinely think that probably would have been the best win in a Premier League big six game for for, for a number of years. Just, just give me like your just immediate your thoughts on those first 75 minutes. We'll, we'll like get into it, break down like the goals, etc. It's your thoughts watching that, that first 75 minutes because this was an Arsenal side who did have a chance to go back to the top of the table, who are unbeaten and unfortunately still are unbeaten. This side that, you know, a, a tip to be in a title race again this season uh, against Chelsea, who, you know, I said a lot of us weren't expecting much. What, what did you make of those first 75 minutes? Because I feel that was probably some of the best football we've seen. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, but also just under Poch as well. Yeah, I thought the, the performance was really, really strong. And um, I think being able to nullify Arsenal's biggest threats, being able to consistently exploit them in some really exciting ways without a centre forward, a natural centre forward, was also something to to be excited about. I, I thought tactically Pochettino got it spot on. I do think maybe the conditions slightly added Chelsea because I think maybe it disrupted Arsenal. But I mean, it's the same for both teams, right? I think that it was at times a scrappy game. At times it was sadly in the end for Chelsea, a game defined by errors from both teams. And um, there is something really, really optimistic about seeing a Chelsea side compete at this level and take, I think, big strides forward in these type of games. I think you are right to point out that, sure, if we talk about big six games, then I went back to Arsenal in the August of 2021, the Lukaku debut goal. But then I think, as you rightly point out, that was a very different Arsenal side to what it is now. And we regularly beat Spurs at home. So you probably have to go back to Man City away from home. And at Stamford Bridge, I mean, I think it's even further back than that. Um, and it's a shame that that, you know, still hasn't been broken. But yeah, I, I think that 
I said this on on online last night. Like I think that if you're comparing this Chelsea side to the Chelsea side of 2005, the Chelsea side of 2015, the Chelsea side of 16-17, I think you're going to be disappointed. But if you compare it to recent years, especially last season, I don't know how you sit there and go, there's been no improvement. Even with results and points on the table not looking incredible, I think performances show a side that are only going to get better. And considering Poch has only been here a few months, I think that's a really, really positive sign. Yeah, Daniel, all very salient points, but three words. This is Chelsea, right? <laughs> no, I completely, completely yeah. agree with you there. Um, we get underway thanks to Cole Palmer converting a penalty and it meant aged 21 years and 168 days. Cole Palmer is the third youngest player to score a penalty in back-to-back Premier League appearances behind only Bakayo Saka and Peter and Lovu. Um, Danny, I want to talk about Cole Palmer because obviously there is also just one of my favourite moments of the game is like Poch just pulls him in for a massive hug just like mid-game, just like you could tell that Poch just absolutely loves him for a moment. Cole Palmer, I was, as I said on the podcast before, I was kind of sceptical about the signing. It arrived on deadline day. I'm thinking 40 million Chelsea, really? Like, no doubt there's a talent there, but I was thinking, you know, I feel there's maybe slightly more pressing needs you know I was thinking it's another young player for us to develop at this point in time we hadn't really shown signs yet of developing all these players that we'd win so I was you know pretty skeptical and I was thinking could you not have got got you know that on a more experienced player to add to this team because again at the time experience was something that this team felt like lacking but I feel just week by week Cole Palmer just kind of just proves me wrong uh, and completely justifies Chelsea's uh you know Chelsea going for him spending about 40 million on him because that was an excellent performance against, you know, it is a step up also from the opposition he's played so far. I just thought he was just absolutely excellent on the pitch. You know, cold, calm and collective really is how you described it. I think it's also how he was described on, on commentary, you know, sticking the penalty away. It was just such a, a really wonderful performance from, from him yesterday, wasn't it? Yeah, it's, um, I, I was also quite sceptical and it wasn't to do with the, the player's individual talent. I was just concerned about the constant sort of like stockpiling of players in wide attacking areas who were young and need minutes. And I, I still have that concern. Like, I still think there are players within that squad. I, I look at, say, Noni Madawake and, and think, yeah, especially when, if you, if you consider when Chukameka's back fully fit, when Nkunku eventually is is fit, how this is all going to play out. But this is the the great thing and the wonderful thing about Cole Palmer, just if you take him as as the one example is, it, it's not, it's such a vast improvement on what we had last season, simply because he's productive and he's consistently productive. And I said this on, on recent shows, you know, you don't need, we don't, we don't need to sit here for hours and hours and theorize about where his best position should be, what he should be doing, you know, how, how do you unlock Cole Palmer? This is a guy who's come into Chelsea and very quickly asserted himself as one of our most important players. And sure, it was a penalty, but it's still a lot of pressure on a young player to to score that penalty against Arsenal. And I thought all round, considering he wasn't playing out wide, he was playing as the, the main centre forward at Stamford Bridge. He asserted himself so well. There, there was a fluidity to his game as well. He he was playing in so many areas. Uh, he was dropping literally behind the midfield three at times to receive the ball. Um, and I think that was really difficult for Arsenal to track. And I don't know if Nicholas Jackson's fitness played a part in that, but I think from a tactical point of view, Pochettino got it spot on because they just couldn't, that that sort of fluid front three really worked. Well, I think the way out wide Raheem Sterling and Mudrick were just really, really hard for Arsenal to counteract. And then you've got this guy in the centre who can drop deep, can receive the ball in tight areas and can also potentially finish chances. So, yeah, I think Cole Palmer is it, forty million is 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 looking like actually a pretty good piece of business actually the in, in recent weeks and he's just you look at it now four starts two goals three assists I mean that's I I don't know if you can ask for much more from from a player of that age. Yeah, particularly given that he did not have huge amount of Premier League experience, you know, despite the forty million pound price. Like Daniel B, you know, second goal scorer Mikhailo Mudrik. Like, is it is it deliberate? Is it is it a miss hit? It's it's surely positioning from David Raya that allows it. But his game by numbers: twenty nine touches, five times possession, one two duels, one two fouls, one two shots, one on target, one goal. And Daniel, what obviously like 
you know, the goal is what we're going to remember him by. And, you know, there's that really, you know, it's annoying now looking back. There's this such a cold photo of him just like with his arms a lot. Almost, I'm, I'm not going to say doing the Bellingham because I feel like everyone sort of does that celebration really. And everyone just labelled it doing a Bellingham, doing a Bellingham. But I all thought his work like off the ball and his defensive positioning as well is outstanding. And that was sort of one of the reasons why I thought maybe when people were getting frustrated while he wasn't playing, I thought, you know, maybe defensively he wasn't defensively disciplined enough, but it does seem as well. Hotch is, you know, managing to get back into his game because obviously, you know, he's he's a threat going forward. But again, last night sort of defensively uh, and when Chelsea were, you know, out of position, I thought he was also just really, just really good. Just, you know, it's been for him as well, just super encouraging month. Obviously, you know, goal in the international break as well. You know, that's two league goals in his last three games now for Chelsea. You know, just again, signs of this player coming to life. And I guess just also a, a word on that and then also just, I guess, a word on, the environment, right? Because I feel that's got to, we've got to talk about probably the environment that Poch has created in that, in that, you know, we are starting to see, you know, a couple of young players start to thrive in this team when there were perhaps doubts given what we'd seen sort of, you know, players coming into that, that situation last season and even a bit beginning of, of this season as well. Yeah, it's, um, it's really, really encouraging. And, you know, this is a guy who clearly has magic, within his boots he can do extraordinary things and I think that's why a lot of people are excited about him he can maybe unlike all the attackers who have their own talents this is a guy who will just provide a little bit of uh spark and maybe a little bit of uh crazy at times and that's that's a good thing you know you need that in attack you know to be to be brilliant you it's as it's all right having all these nice patterns that you can repeat on a regular basis but you also need at times a player who is going to do something out of the ordinary and maybe do something unpredictable but I completely agree with you on the work rate point of view I mean he um I thought down that left especially in the first half there are a few times where he tracks back he wins the ball he gets a foul and and release pressure kind of the things that you know Edin Hazard used to do and I'm not comparing those two players but it just slightly reminded me in these big games of you need your attackers, especially wide ones, to to cover and relieve pressure, and to to do the the, the hard work. And, and I think if that's something that Madrid really need to work on to get him back in the team, he's done that. And I think as we all kept on saying, it's very hard to judge a player's player's quality in the first team unless they get a run in the first team. And we've seen him now have a run in the first team, and um, he looks aggressive. He looks impactful. He looks confident and there clearly is talent there. So I, I think it's a really exciting time from a from a coaching point of view because I've seen some really wild shouts that apparently Pochettino isn't coaching the team that well and isn't helping to improve these attackers. I mean, I'm I'm sorry, the 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 reality and the numbers just don't back that argument up. Like this is Clearly something that Pochettino has been working on. I think the evidence in front of us is showing that, especially with some of these younger players, it's an environment that is creating good competition. I think we saw that in the Burnley game when Raheem Sterling returned in place of Mikhail Midrick and the performance you got from Raheem Sterling. And then both of them start against Arsenal. And I think both of them had really good games. So I think it's it's a healthy environment. It's one that you hope will only increase the competitive level within the squad, which is what you want. You want you don't just want a settled first team. You also want a healthy balance. And, and Mudrick with that goal, whether he meant it or not, I mean, I think it was just, it's such a big moment for him as a character to have that at Stamford Bridge. It's a shame, of course, it doesn't contribute to a win, but I, I'm fully confident that he will continue to to score and impact games and and hopefully start to justify the, the the huge investment Chelsea put in him. Yeah, I don't know what the, the XG on that goal was, but the, the expected narrative was certainly high on him getting that goal as well. Um, Daniel, I want to talk about the midfield three, and in particular, I mean, I thought they were exceptional. You know, the reason why I think Arsenal really struggled for basically large parts of that game until we, you know, handed them a life which also just due to how good our midfield was. Obviously, you know, Enzo Caicedo, Again, I thought, you know, just really, really good today, uh, yesterday. Conor Gallagher as well. His game by numbers, 48 touches, eight times he won possession, five duels won, four chances created, four touches in the opposition box, two tackles, one assist. He created more chances than any other player on the pitch. Obviously, by the way, that assist is that is that pass to Mudrick for that miss across. So again, you know, be, be, be wary of, of sort of, you know, definitely just using the numbers of him, But just such an all-round performance. And he, you know, again, a lot of, 
there does always seem to be sort of talk around him, you know, whether he's good enough or not. But again, he just like just keeps showing to people or short. I mean, if he's not going to change people's minds now, then I guess he never will. And I feel like we've said that about just like other players at Chelsea in the past anyway. But he is sort of just making his, you know, role in the side. You know, he's made he's really making that his own. And he has just been, again, just like just really, really good start the season. And it just helps, you know, Romeo Lavia has not kicked the ball yet for Chelsea. We're not even talking about him or saying, you know, we're missing him or how desperate he is to come back. And he probably makes it easier when Lavia is back to actually easy returning because Connor and the rest of our midfield just, again, just excellent yesterday. Yeah, I was really intrigued to see how that midfield three that looked really impressive against uh, Fulham and Burnley, how they would compete and work against a highly talented midfield three. And I know the Arsenal perspective will be Odegaard had a really poor game and Jorginho was overrun and Declan Rice, apart from actually, I know it was, despite it being a mistake, it was a brilliant finish. I actually think that was one of Declan Rice's poorest games in, in a long time. And you have to give some of that to the opposition for disrupting that. And I think it was really, really positive that this midfield looks to have all of the qualities that you'd want. It has creativity. It has a technical ability. It also has a physicality. And and I think a lot of that is obviously led by Conor Gallagher, who I just find it extraordinary that there's even a debate whether he should be starting at the moment for Chelsea because he's an extraordinary player. And um, it's great to see because he had such a... I like a lot of players last season had a, had a really difficult time of it. And I, you know, I think there was a lot of shouts that would he ever make it. And the fact that Chelsea were trying to sell him still on deadline day, I thought was just remarkable. I really hope that people and the club see sense now because all, as you just read, you know, impact, right. And it's not, again, it shouldn't take a genius to realize why Conor Gallagher is impactful and why Pochettino has played him in literally every single game so far this season is because it's not just about running around. It's the quality he has. And he has developed as a player, I think, as well. I think he's been able to at, at round become a more rounded player this year. And he's shown an ability to maybe be a little bit more calm on the ball and provide better decision-making. You'd suspect that would happen as you become a, an older player and play more minutes. But he he's just hit... That tenacity he has and that spirit he has, it's just, it's so infectious and it's so brilliant to see. And and given his age, that armband does not look like it's um, a burden on him. It looks like it's only made him a better player. And I think Enzo, I'd still like to see a bit more from Enzo. There was a really lovely moment in the first half where the ball is kind of sticking to his feet. I would still like to see a bit more from him from a creative point of view. Casado is is already showing again why we've upgraded in central midfield. Like I I said on the show last week, I was on the you know I, I would take Conor Gallagher over Matteo Kovacic every day of the week, and and the other people who weren't Chelsea fans were sort of like, oh that's a really hot take, and I'm I just don't know how it's a hot take. Like you got one guy who is who clearly impacts the team, and I think we saw it again last night with Jorginho. I think we've said before on this on this show, Jorginho that there, there's a lot of respect for what he did at Chelsea, but you just look at the upgrade in in all-round ability in a game. And I just, I think it's undeniable what Casado, Enzo and Gallagher bring compared to what we had last season, you know, especially if Kovacic and Jorginho. That's not trying to kick the boot in on those players. That's not saying that those players never had good games for Chelsea. But from what I would like to see from a midfield, I think this is a much more appeasing and kind of... Um, effective midfield and that's that's I think you're right to point out that they absolutely dominated for a large portion against a really really good midfield with an extraordinary player like Declan Rice in there as well yeah no look and again on this podcast you mentioned the Kovacic Gallagher comparison obviously on this podcast I you know I'm I like Kovacic but I'm nowhere near as big as a lot of people are. and I think you know kind of says as I said before on podcast with Kovacic time at Chelsea I think he had one absolutely elite season in 21-22. He had a very good season in 90-20. He had a couple of average seasons, uh, you know, in... He had, he had an average season sort of in 20, uh, in 2021. Then I thought he had, you know, last season, along with a lot of others, was shambolic. And in 18-19, like, let's be real, none of us wanted him signed after that loan spell. And he did feel with Kovacic at the time, going on tangent it. Like, he could be good, but he kind of needed at times sort of his hand held a little bit, whereas it feels like Conor Gallagher actually, I mean, because we get Conor Gallagher was doing this, 
bring in these performances. Before Caicedo was in this team, like he started the season yeah. off really well. So him and Enzo doing well. And he is like thrived, like as I said, and I feel like again, well, I mean, we'll see this he now, you know, Rodri's back. Kovacic will probably look a lot better with Rodri at City than he does without. Again, it's just one of those wise things. But anyway, I digress and I completely yeah, Conor Gallagher is just the type of player you kind of just want Kovacic, you know, as a player, like if you have the perfect team around you, then sure. But Chelsea are not a perfect team. So I don't think you can necessarily afford to carry luxury players like Kovacic at times was where Conor Gallagher is not a luxury player. He is an industrious player who will who will give you a lot. And yeah, just really nice. Uh, Daniel, we've got a couple more players I do want to get through. Marco Corella gets start at left back. Obviously, we have seen him play at a right back. It means Axel Dazazi sits on the bench for the first time this season. Fortunately, Bournemouth, who again, I thought, you know, certainly Bukayo Saka, he had, you know, he, you know, pretty kept Bukayo Saka pretty quiet and again got Bukayo Saka quite easily frustrated last night. Kukurela, you know, who knows what his long-term future is here. But I do think it's actually just been really nice to see these last few weeks for Kukurela. And he's not perfect. He is, he is flawed. And there'll still be questions if he is necessarily good enough for Chelsea long-term. But for a player that was largely written off, probably, and it's not his fault, but player people probably just were sick of the sight of, just given, you know, the book thinking about potential consequences. And there may still be consequences you know, further down the line with someone like like Ian Martin, etc. But he has come into this team and he's not really, you know, I don't really think let us down. He's maybe had sort of shaky moments in sort of games and then just like step up again yesterday. I just thought there's just really sort of performance for him. Yeah, I mean the Kukure redemption arc is something that I don't think many of us saw coming. Uh and I think I said this on my show after the Brighton game, which I think was his first game in a while, and he was against, and he was at right back, and he was against Matoma, one of the best wingers in in this league, and he had a good performance. And I said, "It's not. I, I don't understand pe- people's inability to just praise players for one individual performance, or just like it doesn't mean that last season didn't happen. It doesn't mean that you were wrong about your criticism. It doesn't mean that Marco Correa is the perfect choice for Chelsea long term." But I'm not, it's not about having an agenda. It's it's about seeing reality <laughs> in front of my eyes. And Kukurea was against Bakayo Saka. And sure, Saka has had some injury problems recently, but this is still a wonderful talent. And the way he, especially in that first half, how aggressive he was against Saka, who I've seen come to the bridge before and just run down that left, um, that right flank without much, without much uh, opposition. And um he as a character, you've got to also factor in the stuff that I think Matt Laura spoke about before, the, the personal stuff that's been going on with him since he's arrived at Chelsea and the fact that he was potentially on the brink of leaving Chelsea. It's it's hopefully, you know, this is once again, you go back to the environment, the positive environment that maybe Pochettino is cultivating behind the scenes that is allowing players to come into a situation where maybe they feel isolated before, but actually they feel in a good headspace to perform and I would like to think that Kukurea is also stepping up his game because of the competition around him because he knows there's Ben Chirwell he knows there's Ian Matson, he knows that there isn't a comfort level there where he could potentially lose his spot Levi Colwell has been playing at left back for a majority of this season so far so it's not you know you can't rest on your laurels in this team and I think that's hopefully the case but I absolutely um it, it's a win-win situation right I don't there's nothing to be negative about. We all want every Chelsea player. I'd like to think we'd all want every, every Chelsea player to contribute to to good performances and and play well. And uh, long may it continue, right? And and that doesn't mean that he's going to be my dream starting left back when everyone's fit. Obviously not. I don't think the majority of Chelsea fans would have Marco Carrera in their starting lineup over Ben Chilwell when everyone's fit. But when you do have to play him. You want him to play well. He has been playing well, so let's give him some credit for doing so. Yeah, and another player who's been playing well after maybe some of us have been writing him off or trying to write him off for, for a while. Thiago Silva, Daniel, I feel like, and, and, and to be fair, understand, and I think like some of the criticism was fair. It was understandable seeing what we see. But again, last night, he is just absolutely immense. And if, again, I mean, look, I don't think, you know, like majority of them deserve to be on a winning side anyway, but he certainly deserved to be on a on a winning side last night. Thiago Silva just immense and like fair play to him. He's what thirty nine going on forty, like performing at this level again against one of the best teams in the league. Just fair play to man. Like I feel like I'm gonna I'll probably still continue to write him off of like yeah. at times this season question like 
you know, potentially why is he still starting? And obviously, look, Benoit Badishile is now back. He's on the bench last night. Dazazi does sit this one out. But look, credit to the man. Like, we, we probably will try to keep writing him off throughout the season, just the way it goes, his age, etc. But outstanding performance from him yesterday. Yeah, I have to hold my hands up and say I doubted him too quickly this season. And uh, I've been proven wrong. And, and it's great that he's still providing a level of performance that, you'd want from him and he has for the majority of his Chelsea career. I mean, it's just ridiculous his age and the, the speed of this sport continuing to increase at a high level, uh, especially in the Premier League. And the evidence is right there that he is, he's still proving to be a a really, really big player for us. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just a win-win situation, right? Because I think we all are quite excited by the youth in that defence and the the future of that defence with Badiashil, with Levi, with uh, Wesley Fofano when he eventually returns. But I think they're... they're and of course, Dezassi, who's he's had a really good start to the season as well. So there obviously is a future to, to be excited about, but Thiago... Is is just? I mean, he defies logic. He defies um, what we know about football. I mean, it's just it's it's insane, really. And and I think again, as I spoke about with the midfield, my big concern about Thiago, my one criticism was, or just yeah, yeah, concern for the majority of the season was, I just feared at his age with his speed in a back four with the progressive and intense way Pochettino wants to play, that it would prove a limitation uh, for him. And I'd watched us be hit on the counter a few times, but I've been proven wrong and I'm happy to be proven wrong. And um, I, I just hope again, it continues because I also think as a character, I mean, what, and you just got to think if you're, if you're Levi, if you're Benoit Badiashil, if you're Axel Dezassi, if you're uh, of course, Wesley Fana, if you're a young defender and you're in that environment with Thiago Silva, what an incredible player for Levi, especially against Arsenal. You're playing alongside this guy, a veteran, one of the greatest defenders we've ever seen in, in world football. And you're getting this masterclass. And it's just, I think it's such a wonderful thing for those players to experience. And I'm sure for for Bochettino, he must be absolutely delighted that he's got some of the most exciting uh, centre-backs in, in European football, young centre-backs in European football, but also this, this talismanic figure. And um, yeah, listen, I'll say it. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I doubted you, Tiago. Please forgive me. And uh, uh, long may it continue. Your your brilliance. Your 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 Benjamin Button uh, of football. Indeed, Dan. We have been very positive. We are now going to have to, unfortunately, take a slight negative turn. Because Chelsea did not win this game. Um, we drew to all, and probably the catalyst for that is Robert Sanchez's pass out the back. Now, look, there may be some criticism people will direct to Gallagher for being, like, a tiny bit slow reacting to things like, it just, like, Rice gets there, head of him wherever, it's a great first-time shot. But the thing is, Robert Sanchez, he had actually been a bit shaky that game. He'd been sort of flapping across us a bit. And in recent weeks, his distribution with a ball back had left you a little bit nervous. He, you know, against Brighton in the Cup a couple of times, uh, well, quite a lot of times, only distribution for back was shaky. Fulham away, he had a, a shaky moment. But in those games, he sort of made the save to sort of go, OK, like, it's fine. Like, you know, you did your main job. Unfortunately, that did really come back to fight. And look, we'll talk about it later. Like, Chelsea probably have a chance to kill the game off before that moment anyway. When you're a team that hasn't doesn't win many games at Stamford Bridge, Chelsea have won one of their last 12 Premier League games at Stamford Bridge. They've got nine points out of a possible 36 from their last 12 Premier League games at Stamford Bridge. You don't, you, oh, that's just, feels unforgivable really to be doing that in that moment. Like there's, what, 13 minutes to go plus plus stoppage time. And I'm like, maybe at that point, I don't know, maybe I'm like, oh, fashion traditional, like maybe just go long at points, man. You know, you don't always need to yeah. play that short. Maybe it's simplistic and obviously it is, you know, the way they are asked to play but that just lets Arsenal win and unfortunately I feel like a lot of people at that moment just kind of thought oh Arsenal are going to get another equalised now aren't they you just can't just because of the way like the game's gone like Chelsea been so good that game but you let one goal in and then all of a sudden Arsenal have got life and then you know Arsenal make it to but unfortunately that is the main talking point of a game and that is going to dominate a lot of the headlines of the discourse around Chelsea instead of actually what was a really good performance. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's um it'd be silly to say that there was no evidence of this happening with with Sanchez uh distribution because you know think about the Brighton game, right? He was uh 
just awful um, in that Brighton game in the first half. I mean, he just literally, there was, was it Drao Pedro? I mean, he literally passed the ball to Drao Pedro and somehow Pedro missed the opportunity. So we got away with it then. We didn't get away with it here. And um, I, I'm not, I mean, I, it's, it's funny, right? I'm at Stamford Bridge and I sit around people who are a lot older than me, who I get the sense are really disliking of the idea that goalkeepers and just, uh, they get grumpy that we try and pass the ball. And I kind of chuckle because you're not watching the game. Like the game has evolved and we're not just going to look like what team in the Premier League just lumps the ball up. Now you're, you actually quite surprised when you can't against a team that does it. Even in like the lower leagues in, in, in English pyramid are playing a style of football that to be lazy, it, Pep Guardiola-esque, right? The influence of him in, in the game and the way it's evolved. But I think Chelsea, you've made this point, right? It's not, it's not the idea that you can never, that, that concept of distributing from the back of, of, of being confident that your goalkeeper can almost at times play as a third centre-back in build-up. It's not about saying that that's, that's now rubbish and you just com- continually lump the ball aimlessly up the field. There needs to be an idea of context, of game state, of if you're not sure, if you're, if you're not confident, there's no harm. As To be honest, Sanchez did it several times and, and the idea that Chelsea don't hit the ball long that game disproved that theory consistently when, when just, and, and Man City do it, the best teams do it because you need to be versatile. You need to understand that there are times when if you don't feel confident, if you don't feel sure, if the conditions as well, I, I felt this in the first half too, the conditions on that pitch meant that at times the slick passing wasn't always favourable because the ball wasn't bouncing. It wasn't rolling across the turf in the best way. So, just hitting the ball long and sure, if we lose possession, yeah, it's frustrating or it goes out of play. Is it the end of the world? And unfortunately, Sanchez has done this a few times now. So it's not, I don't think people are going overboard by saying you're looking at the goalkeeper. But then you also balance that with the fact that Sanchez has, I think, had some good performances with what you call the um, the basics of goalkeeping, keeping the ball out of the net with, with you know, saving at times, you know, and, and he's, and he's I think physically he's a lot better than Kepa was, but you can't have your goalkeeper costing you points like that, especially big games. And um, I think the, the calls for Petrovic to be given a chance are, are going to increase now. I, I get the sense that Pochettino won't do that. I mean, maybe he'll shock me, but it's, it's just so gutting because if that, it sounds like, again, Michael Owen analysis here, but it's like, if, if that, doesn't happen. I don't think they score the second goal. I don't think it's a case where if I that doesn't Arsenal happen, score a goal. I think it's a comfortable no, I think, win. Well, because at that literally in that phase of play, Chelsea had killed off Arsenal. Their fans were completely dead, silent. It felt like Arsenal had kind of given up at that point, and we were just going to see the game out. And that's that's what is so irritating. And that's you can sort of balance out and go. In the long term, that's the seventy-five, however long minutes shows that Chelsea are going in a really good direction. But then there also is that fact of just individual errors. It's just, it's so irritating. It so feels so typical of Chelsea in recent times of just shooting ourselves in the foot against these big teams and gifting Arsenal goals, which I know someone else pointed out. We, we've been doing quite a lot in recent years. It's just, um, it's just, um, you know, yeah, as I say, it's unforgivable and it's, it's, not, it's not an anomaly. If this was the first time Sanchez had done it, I think maybe I'd be sitting here and going, it's just one mistake. But the fact that he has actually not been punished for it in recent weeks, you know, leads you to believe that it's it's a flaw. Yeah, it certainly there was a sense that it had been coming, you know, and said even when praising Sanchez in previous weeks for making some really good saves, there was also a question, does bore me of the ball at his feet a bit. And then the second goal, uh, it's a great cross for that post. Uh, Trossard gets uh, in behind just, um behind Gusto uh, and makes it to all. And again, Daniel, maybe for brutal fights, I feel like if there'd been another 10 minutes, we might have lost that game. That was just genuinely how mad that game yeah. was. But we end up drawing to all. It is frustrating because it was an opportunity for the same win as that, that stat I read earlier. Like, Stamford Bridge has not been nice for league games. Like, nine points out of a possible 36, one win. And that was against Luton. As we mentioned, you know, Chelsea have not won a big six league game at Stamford Bridge, but isn't Tottenham for far too long. I, I genuinely would have to 
go back and look because they've not been Arsenal since uh, August 2018 when Maurizio Sarri was in charge. They've not been to Manchester United since uh, Jose Mourinho was in charge of Manchester United. Obviously beat City uh, in the COVID season with Frank, but then Liverpool, they've not beaten at Stamford Bridge in the league since uh, May 2018. So in general, like that was just such an opportunity that's gone begging and that really does does hurt. And when it is self-inflicted, and it, just a general point as well, I feel like in big six games, Again, the, I I don't have the data to back this up on Saturday, but I feel in big six games out of the traditional big six teams, Chelsea obviously one to throw away leads the most out of all those yeah. teams. Like I feel like obviously games against last year, Tottenham we've lost, uh, we drew late on. Man United last season, awful game, didn't deserve to win, but we were winning and we drew that late on. There's just been like instances of so many games I feel, but we've just thrown away leads in recent years, and it's just so annoying because I feel. Well, Daniel, I'm not sure why before we get onto this question. I think last night has actually probably done a lot for fans' belief in the direction we are going because I think a lot of fans can see, well, we were actually really good for a lot of that game and there was a lot to to really like about it. And it, it's just a shame because that was an opportunity for, you know, the statement win of a Pochettino era and, you know, hopefully it does not sort of come back. We don't look at that game as a potential turning point because, we, you know, looking back to last season, there were times under Grand Point, we, you know, we were cl- maybe close to that statement, but we just then fell, you know, fell short at the end. It felt like last night could have just been so big for Pochettino and this group because, and we, there was a question on it, we'll go on to it, but given the run of fixtures we had as well, obviously that will instill some confidence, but that just does a real statement to actually go, actually, yeah, Chelsea, in these bigger games, yeah, you'd actually feel confident they can they can really get something. And I think there'll still be a, a, a semblance of that, but Last night suddenly just feels just like a real missed opportunity gone begging. Because also, when are we going to, you know, come against, come up against an Arsenal side, but also did play that poorly for large parts of the game? Like, I mean, I think them playing poorly is largely down to us as well. But that last night just feels such a missed opportunity. Yeah, it's just going, and it does feel like, um, you know, when are we going to be able to enjoy something as a Chelsea as Chelsea fans? Because it it just feels whether it's players getting injured or just those big wins that are just so few and far between now. But I do agree with you. It's trying to be objective and trying to be, trying to look at the, the broader picture. Like the the way, you know, I felt after yesterday's game, like think back to the discourse after the Aston Villa defeat and the Bournemouth game where people were saying, we've completely wasted money in the summer. We did, where was the experience in this team? Um, the, 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 the ownership have completely ruined us and we have no idea what we're doing. I think people maybe should be reassessing that, you know, initial thought right now because, as I say, you can't you can't just ignore performances. I know people will. I imagine there'll be some people who say, "Look at Man United, who are a couple points in front of us right now," and say, "Well, look, Man United are such a mess, but they're still winning games." And it's and, and I'd rather be in Man United's position, but it's like honestly, no, I wouldn't rather be in Man United's position because performance wise. They are fundamentally a broken team. They beat Sheffield United and it's a bit, you know, if you're going to dismiss Chelsea beating Burnley or Chelsea beating Luton, then you have to dismiss Man United beating Sheffield United as a promoted team. And I think that there absolutely should be a belief. When we spoke last year about Graham Potter, trusting the process, which is such, you know, these, these terms get so beaten down and meaningless at this point. There needs to be some evidence, you know, for people to believe in the long term. And unfortunately, I think that that belief would have been there if we would have won last night. Absolutely. But I still think it's undeniable that Chelsea are moving in a positive direction. I think all of the evidence in front of us are showing a team that are playing well, that are creating opportunities, that look cohesive, that have just... If you put it on a basic level, in recent years, we have consistently moaned about the fact that it feels like the majority of the squad is underperforming, maybe with the odd good individual. I think it's flipped now. The majority of this squad under Pochettino so far this season are playing well and you are getting individual mistakes. I think that is where you'd want to be. I think it's on the team now to next week against Brentford, a massive opportunity at Stamford Bridge to win at Stamford Bridge, which as you say is a rarity. And then go into that Spurs game, which is obviously huge. It's just, yeah, it's it's a shame, right? And because it's such a difficult run of games coming up, I think the concern is of, of that distance between us and the top four getting a little bit bigger and maybe people being a, le- a little bit less forgiving now of us dropping points, um, which is a shame, but I, I still hope that there will be positives. It, this, this team does remind me of the 1920 team a lot. It reminds me of that sort of youthful, vibrant, 
kind of energy that people got behind and the belief that they can do some cool things. But you, I'd like to think under Pochettino, there's a better tactical shape and structure that can develop us even further. So it's it, there's no point being around it. It was a missed opportunity. It was us throwing the game away. There, there's no way you can't be irritated by that and just brush over that. But I'm also not going to be nihilistic and say there's been no improvement. What a waste of time this is. This has been. You know, I, I think that's my my thoughts on it. Yeah, yeah, agree. And now we shall move on to listener questions. First listener question comes in from RJ. Disappointing result in the end, but does this performance give you more or less confidence heading into our next run of tough fixtures? Obviously, Daniel, on the pod before the international break, I kind of predicted in this sort of run of five before the next international break, Chelsea would win one of those five games and that would be Brentford. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe we could get a draw, you know, maybe we could maybe get a draw, a Newcastle, or maybe we could maybe, you know, turn up against Spurs, you know. There was, a, I thought there was a potential we could maybe get a result in some of these other games, but I, I was only sort of expecting one win for, from these amount of fixtures. Obviously, I think for me, and I've said to you before, before we start recording, I think last night has done kind of, I'm, I feel more confident about Chelsea now than I did prior to this game, despite the fact that we threw away a lead in a big game. Um, just what are your thoughts sort of about these you know, next round of fixtures heading into the international break? Because as I said, um, I said it, it's Brentford next Saturday, twelve thirty kickoff. There's obviously Blackburn in the cup in midweek. Tottenham away on on, on the Monday, uh, and then there's Manchester City at home before the international break, and then obviously after the interna- international break, there's Newcastle away, and then we we sort of head into December. Um, just what are your sort of thoughts? You know, heading into these next round, has, has last night you know instilled some more confidence in into into you that this team can actually you know get something from these games, and we actually are perhaps even better suited to these games than we were against the, the sides we were playing before. Yeah, I do think uh, tactically, I think it suits Chelsea a lot more in in with the profile player we have of being able to counter a little bit more and soak up more pressure and then really use that speed in transition. I think that was evident last night. Brentford have been pretty poor so far this season. Um they got a big win yesterday, but that was again against you know Burnley, who who've been really struggling so far this season. So I'm pretty confident heading into that game. It will be a different, different like a a slightly different kind of approach because I suspect that Brentford will be a lot more compact. It will be Chelsea trying to break them down, but uh, I I have confidence that the team can and some of the players can really make a difference in that game. Then. Obviously, Blackburn in the Cup, you can't forget that. I mean, it's a chance for Chelsea to get into the quarterfinal and hopefully we'll see the likes of Benoit, Badia Schill, Rhys James, maybe get their first starts if you're trying to ease some players back in. Tottenham and Man City, I mean, those are two games where, again, it's it's big and you're going to have some serious moments of Chelsea under pressure, but it's just, it's difficult, right? Because I think if we would have won, I think we would have been really buzzing, right? And then there would have been that kind of leeway that you maybe would have accepted us even losing one of those games if we played well. But I think the despondent nature of some fans will will sort of be really harsh on the team now and question their ability to, to win. But I think you've got to be optimistic that the team can compete in these games and perform better and hopefully find that, that edge and and that final piece to to win one of these and Tottenham I mean Tottenham have had a really strong start to the season but I also think they are a team who under Postacoglu do give up opportunities you know they do give you chances to hit in transition I think Liverpool exploited that at times and that wasn't the best Liverpool performance you've ever seen and obviously they were down to 10 men for and, and eventually nine men for for periods of that game so I, I think Tottenham will give us opportunities. It's whether we can take them. Man City are obviously the best team arguably in the world currently. And, um, but they also have proven to be shaky. And again, is that, is that a, a game where Chelsea in transition actually have an ability to hurt them? You know, I think that's going to be an interesting tie as well. After the international break, you know, I think Newcastle, sure. Newcastle are a, a very different team to the one they were before, but I, I think Chelsea should be competing with Newcastle. I think Chelsea could be beating Newcastle. And then Brighton and Man United. I mean, we've already beaten Brighton this season. 
and Man United have been a bit of a mess so far this season. So on paper, they are big games psychologically and they obviously mean a lot. But the idea that Chelsea can't get anything out of these games, again, I, I go, I try to take my emotion out of it and try to just look at performances and data and they show a team that are creating opportunities. And I think that gives you more of a chance than it doesn't. That's very simple, but that's the way I'm approaching it. So hopefully that big win is coming. Um, under Pochettino I, I think if we keep on playing the way we are I think it will come I just I can't see how we keep on playing this way I think the only thing that stops that is confidence level right that's my one concern is the confidence and belief that these players goes down but that was my concern after Aston Villa and then the team turned around and beat Brighton beat Fulham beat Burnley and played the way they did last night so my hope is that confidence level will still be at quite a high level and obviously that's got to start by beating Brentford next weekend yeah, yeah, RJ. I think again, if we if we get a poor result against Brentford next week, then maybe the the confidence will, will lower. But ultimately, yeah, I got the in say you look at a couple of Chelsea's best performances this season: Liverpool on the opening day uh, and Arsenal yesterday. Yes, their draws, but also their games where Chelsea played really well and probably could and should have won if they had. You know, I mean, yes, we shouldn't have needed to take chances. But Dan, I, I did kind of sort of get to, to forget to talk about this at the end of the sort of main Arsenal chat. But Chelsea did also miss the opportunity yesterday to kill that game off and I think you know hopefully in time that will come but there were big chances Raya passes it basically straight to Cole Palmer uh, and Cole Palmer has an opportunity maybe it's just a bit too takes too long to sort of decide what he wants to do and Raya sort of recovers it and then Jackson again sort of played through and sort of you know is in two minds and Raya just easily smothers it look in the game in the game that shouldn't really have mattered because Chelsea should still two goals yesterday still should have been enough but I guess that will also be key linking back to RJ's question but when we get these opportunities to really kill teams off but we do need to because yesterday was pretty near perfect 75 minutes. But that game, there were opportunities in that game to kill off that we did not take. And in these big sides, you do have to really, you will never feel truly safe in these big games until you actually probably kill a side off. And I guess that is the next step for, for Poch to work on with these guys. Yeah, I saw someone point out like Kunku in that environment, you know, is especially... You know, and Kunku's kind of been spe- uh, speciality, or at least one of the things that he regularly did at Leipzig in transition was take the ball around a goalkeeper, one-on-one situations. He he looks really, really deadly, and um, I guess that's the one thing right. Being clinical, uh, it's it's just again so frustrating that you. He, I do agree with you. It shouldn't. We shouldn't have to look back at those because, again, it all comes from a really, really bad mistake, and nine times out of ten, you'd like to think that that. We're not even having that conversation. Um, I think with Jackson, it's, again, him being quite a young forward. I think it's just decision-making. If, you know, maybe if you're in doubt there, I just think take a shot, you know, and then maybe Raya saves it and you get a corner out of it. It's just, I I think the indecisiveness at times of of Chelsea forwards is just really, really frustrating. I'm less harsh on Cole Palmer there um, because it's a mistake. And I think he tries his best to to take it round him and maybe even win a penalty. And I think Raya actually recovers it quite well. So I'm encouraged by the fact that Chelsea are getting into good positions. I think that's, that's kind of my general feeling. And, and as I say, it's easy to forget that Nkunku will be returning. And I think in those situations in the long term, I'd like to think he will be a much more deadly player in those situations, especially with his, with his speed and decision-making. Yeah. Uh, next question comes in from I'm going to guess a very disgruntled fan do we have a sellback clause on Sanchez obviously Daniel I, you know silly question we do not but I want to talk about Sanchez just a little bit more because we focus on the game because as I said I actually think you know shot stopping wise he has been fairly solid for Chelsea you know I don't really think there's necessarily been goals where sort of you're questioning him hugely on terms of his shot stopping but unfortunately goalkeeper is that probably that one position on pitch where a mistake is you know well it's the most fatal because there's, there's no, nobody to back you up and also, Chelsea fans, I guess, are still sort of, rec- I don't want to say recovering because it's maybe harsh on Kepa, but you know, they, they, you know, they've not been, they've, they've seen a team that has had a goalkeeper also struggle for for a number of years, and not really, we've never really been convinced on one, and we Chelsea fans, we've probably not really been super convinced on a keeper really since, I mean, there was a period with Edouard Mendy, but really since Thibaut Courtois, and they, I guess, is just now will unfortunately for Sanchez there will just be a nervousness on him and it will take probably for him due to that the position he was with just that bit longer for him to actually regain fans trust I mean I don't know if he necessarily had him the first because there were still a lot of questions and doubts about you know the signing of him 
but it does feel unfortunate for Sanchez that he just sort of given himself sort of an extra hurdle to come because there is now, understandably, given what we've seen, you know, the ball is being recently, there's going to be a nervousness and it's going to take a while for him to probably sort of really regain the trust of of fans. He'll obviously still, you know, be well supported, you'd like to think, but it is just going to make you just the next time he gets on the ball, fans are going to be that bit more nervous, that bit more anxiety around him, which probably, you know, just doesn't help. But just thoughts about it. it just feels like Sanchez, as good as he, good as he's got, like, sort of has been just last night. Yesterday just feels like quite a big, it will be quite interesting how see how we handle that going forward and how he can, if he can recover from it, because it's going to take a lot probably to, to for Chelsea fans to really sort of gain confidence in him after last night. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's just such a shame because I think actually in recent weeks he his his performances have improved. Um, yeah, it's just so frustrating because, as I say, I think there are other parts of his game that mean that he is an improvement on Kepa. I think physically he's more dominant. I think um, shot stopping wise, there are a few shots that I just don't think Kepa would have saved that he has stopped so far. But uh, it's it's that kind of question mark of of that position and. People calling for a for a goalkeeper in in January. I mean, I, I guess the question is, who would you who would you go for? Who is who is the obvious one out there that is going to make a, a huge difference? Um, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head right now, but it's uh, it is such a, a problematic position. It does, you know. I did feel at the start of the summer that we would go more um, intense for a, for a obvious first choice rather than what feels more like a placeholder with Sanchez. I was asked a question on my show last week about this, and I said the reason why I think maybe they went for Robert Sanchez is because of the investment they've had on young goalkeepers uh, with Gabs and Nina, and kind of they've they fought very hard to keep their goalkeeper. And I guess the concern is, right, if you go for a young-ish, because you've always got to factor in that goalkeepers have a longer lifespan than outfield players, and you want to give the the pathway for Gab or Petrovic to to kind of make their decision to sign for Chelsea worthwhile and not, you know, if you go out and sign a massive player that you're going to be investing in for what you hope is going to be a long period of time, is there concern that that player eventually feels actually my my future isn't really with Chelsea? Maybe that's a, a reasoning of it. I do think stylistically Sanchez makes a lot of sense for what Pochettino wants to do. But there, there is a confident side of it that hope, hopefully isn't too dented by that because Sanchez has played like that in his career for a long period of time. But um, especially from the crowd point of view, they will be ultra critical. I don't, I just don't think that Petrovic is going to be thrown into it straight away. I just can't see it. I think he'll play against Blackburn and then maybe that's how he gets the chance to, to take over. But I, I can't see him switching... Um, him out that quickly, in my opinion. Yeah, fair Final question comes in from Demis. Uh, did Todd Bowley smell good? Uh, you obviously met Todd Bowley yesterday, posted a picture on your socials. Uh, so to answer the question, did he smell good? And uh, how was that conversation? Was it was it just a very brief one? Yeah, it was very brief. Uh, I sort of got forced into the picture, to be honest. Um, and he, he seemed pr- pretty nice, pretty relaxed. He was, he was, it was nice that he was so open and welcoming to to take pictures with several fans and, and even have some brief conversations with them. He was, he was very happy to take a pick and uh, yeah, seemed pretty laid back. So it was, it was good to see him. I, obviously I didn't have a conversation with him. It was, there were so many people were asking him for, for photos and, and, you know, in that sort of situation, I'm sort of just like, um, you know, you just sort of want to move on basically. And I, I think he wanted to sort of move on after it. So yeah, I did. I, I mean, I'm not that sort of, uh, I didn't get that close that I was sort of smelling him. Like, uh, I thought that'd be a bit weird and maybe your security would have got close to me. But um, he was he was pretty nice. And um, I think Hansburg Vice was with him as well, if I remember rightly. And um, he, he had his classic Chelsea bag. I don't know if he was given another, it seems like he's always got a Chelsea bag with him. Like he's got memorabilia. I don't know if he's buying that or he's being given all of that stuff, but. Yeah, that was a pretty surreal moment, to be honest. Very nice. Very nice. Indeed. Now we're going to sort of wrap this up, just like looking back on some news that sort of happened this week and just giving our thoughts on it, because Daniel, there has, you know, it's been, you know, a nice week just, but it's probably just for the, and on the pitch, you know, you know, a lot of positive things to see. But again, it just feels off the pitch and just the other side of football. It's kind of, again, just been a bit of a, 
I guess, depressing week in ways. We kind of hear the news in week that it's rumored that Chelsea are going to play Wolves away on Christmas Eve. Um, not been a box. There's not been a game played on Christmas Eve, I believe they say, for like 28 years or something like that. Um, just thoughts, because when, I mean, my immediate reaction was, well, this doesn't affect me. I will not be away at Wolves on Christmas Eve. But I don't, but my also, but then I was like, but also I don't want to be watching Chelsea on Christmas Eve. And I probably, I mean, who knows when, because then the Boxing Day fixture will probably get moved. But I'm also thinking, I don't want to then have to like record an episode on Christmas Eve and make content on Christmas Eve because it's Christmas. Someone's going to be consuming it. That's just a very minor point of view, a whole list of things. But it, it just baffles me. And I mean, we've not seen it for 28 years. So why now? It just kind of seems like a. It, it's probably just one of the things that it, it's just baffling. It kind of makes you, I don't say fall out of love with football, but it's just one of those many decisions that make you just like worry i guess about the direction that the sport is sort of going yes these 8 p.m kickoffs that we're starting to see slowly creeping on a saturday i know man united had one yesterday and they've also got one against newcastle in a few weeks i believe and there's been uproar about that it just more and more feels like the the match going supporter is being slapped in the face and and less careful with each passing season and i think it's um i understand why but it's i i, I kind of feel like you know, some of the people who work in broadcasting who get paid very handsomely to to work on Sky, that their silence is quite deafening. You know, I, I don't usually hear Gary Neville speak about this uh, because he works for Sky and would be covering these games. You know, I'd like to hear people come out and actually condemn some of the, these decision-making, this decision-making because, you know, it benefits the broadcasters, but it doesn't benefit the average matchday fan. For me, I if it is a 12.30 kickoff on Christmas Eve, I won't be watching it because it's my dad's birthday and we've already organised a, a get-together, a lunch for his birthday. So I won't be watching the game. And um, I think for a lot of people, it just comes across as greed. It comes across as um, just unnecessary. And I'd like to think that common sense comes around. And But th- there is a... I guess there's a balance here of kind of the uh, of us talking about the 3 p.m. blackout and, you know, I have my criticisms of it and, and just more so that certain games for some reason aren't on TV when there's there, there shouldn't much there shouldn't really be a reason for them not to be on TV, especially like midweek ones in February. I remember there was one last year between Man United and Leeds. There was no there was no reason for that game not to be on TV and people get annoyed when they see like four 2 p.m. games on a Sunday and there's only one on. Like I understand the frustration around them, but there is the the balancing act of of the broadcasters get gaining even more power to reschedule games and how unnecessary. If you don't live in the UK, I mean, around Christmas, at the best time, traveling, especially train wise, is already difficult. It's already awkward. You already are dealing with a limited service. But that's not even taken into account the potential strikes that could happen that we saw last year in the UK around the Christmas period that could even make it more difficult. On Christmas Eve, I I mean, I know everyone's different. Some people may even be working. I've been working on Christmas Eve, but not like for now. I worked on Christmas Eve when I was working at Football London. I was working a shift um, sort of in the morning to around midday-ish. But I assume most people on Christmas Eve will want to be traveling to go and see relatives to get ready for Christmas. It, it's a day that, you know, it is is more about focusing on 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 Christmas Day for me. It's because it's my dad's birthday. It's always it's always been quite a special day. It's not one where I'm thinking about football, and um, I I just think it's a nonsense decision. And I just I really hope that the backlash to it and the the supporters associations and and people really put up enough noise to to make a difference. Because what is the benefit of it? Like I don't I don't see what the justification is of it. I don't see that it makes it a better game at 12.30 on Christmas Eve. I think it would be a crap atmosphere anyway. I think a lot of fans actually would maybe turn around and go, I, I'm not even going to this game because it's I've got other things to do. Yeah, no, exactly. Like I said, I'm kind of like used to sort of, you know, the 23rd of December sort of being the cutoff. And then you go, the Boxing Day be the resumption. Yeah, it would be incredibly disappointing. Daniel, there have been some happy news. You mentioned the 2 p.m. kickoffs. There is a plan for, you know, all Sunday 2 p.m. kickoffs in the sort of next rice deal to be broadcast. So that is a positive. But obviously the 3 p.m. blackout has sort of remained. You kind of touched upon it there. But I'm just going to carry on this conversation because it is, I guess it will be in the news. Just like thoughts on it. Because I, as I said, I, can, I understand why the blackout is in place. 
you know, to protect the lower leagues, etc. And uh, I think if you look at our like lower league system compared to other countries, it is the best, best around, right? And that and the blackout rule probably helps in that way. But I do also kind of think that it's baffling that essentially fans overseas have it easier to watch Chelsea games on the TV. That is the than fans in the UK. Like I cannot legally watch every Chelsea match in a season, right? And yeah. then you've got the Premier League. They'll moan about piracy of their content, etc. Uh, and then they never will get they never get any sympathy from it because fans are like, well, that's what we've got resort to to do. And the people who end up pirating the content are kind of seen as heroes because that's just the way we are. Just kind of thought so obviously the 2 p.m. thing is I think a step in the right direction. You know, the fact that because it is, you know, as you said, sometimes there are four games and only one is televised. And then sometimes you also question the one that is televised instead of instead of other ones. For example, the other week having to admit it's just a, a small one point Chelsea Aston Villa, I think it was Chelsea Aston Villa. Ended up, ended up, you know, obviously ended up missing the North London derby, which is a game that I would always tend to like try and watch. Uh, that's because it kicked off at the same time as Chelsea Aston Villa. Just thoughts on the, you know, the two pm kickoff. You know, them all being tough, and then the fact that three pm black off, three uh, pm blackout is still, you know, staying in place. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I got a like a a small kind of preview and an experience of this when I was out in Australia, where I was able to to get like an Optus Sport subscription, mainly for the Women's World Cup, just to be able to to keep up with all the games because I was working on the Women's World Cup. But then also within that Optus Sport subscription, which only cost me like twenty quid, basically, got so much Premier League coverage, um, and that was even before the season started. But I was able to rewatch the Premier League games when they started, I, there was so much back catalogue of historic Premier League games and you were sort of sat there and, and that was in, there was La Liga stuff on there. It was it was basically like a Netflix type football subscription. And it was just a, a, a small glimpse of what, how much I think the English fan, the UK based fan get kind of robbed on a regular basis is that those fans in Australia get to pay, I think a smaller amount for not just Premier League football, but for for more football, and and there's no limitations on them being able to watch rewatch games. When compared to the UK fan, who some of whom will be, as I think both of us will buy the subscriptions for say Sky or TNT as it is now, and Amazon Prime and all of that stuff, but then also pay to actually go and watch the games. But then you still can't watch every single game live. And it is, it, I don't feel that the, you know, the blackout is, I understand. And I kind of have a lot of sympathy for the argument of getting rid of it simply on the basis that because you have so much ability elsewhere to watch Premier League games and because of the prices of football continuing to rise in this country, I have always felt that like the most, the easiest compromise I have found actually and I know there is, I read an article quite a few years ago about this that concerns that actually it would mean that fans getting into more tribal bubbles and actually not watching other clubs. And maybe this only really benefits the bigger clubs with bigger support of kind of a season pass. You know, if you were given the ability as a Chelsea fan to buy a season pass to watch every game. And I know that's an American way of doing it. I know that you can do that in the NFL um, I believe. And and the MLS, I mean, the MLS Apple TV subscription thing is, has worked out wonderfully well in terms of being able to distribute their content and coverage over over um, a season. So I, I generally think that's where it's going. I, I do think that at some point there's going to have to be an understanding of a compromise between what sort of modern demands are on broadcasting and also just the fact that it's it's wrong that fans are being asked to pay in this country so much for subscriptions, not being able to watch games whilst ticket prices continue to go up. That there, there is gonna you would like to think a breaking point. Uh, but I understand people's also concerns of handing broadcasters more power that then we see even more inconvenient times in the schedule, an 8 p.m. kickoff where how are fans supposed to get back home? A 6.30 kickoff, how are fans supposed to get back home? And the Christmas Eve thing we were just speaking about. All of these things combined make it a very awkward situation. It means it almost feels like whatever way you go, fans end end up getting screwed either way. And that's that's a a very sad situation. Yeah, no, because obviously I was thinking about it. And I said, if they wanted to have, because obviously 3 p.m. blackout rule, obviously I'm a Chelsea fan. It's not going to, 
make me go and watch a lower league side. The obviously the thing is that lower league fans might then actually go, oh, there's a good 3pm game I want to watch. I'd rather watch that instead. But it makes me go, and this is, this is what I guess we have the issue is, because I love a 3pm kick, right? It's a great time. You can, you know, it's, it's just a great time because you can go to pub meet mates beforehand, watch the game, go to, you know, go to pub after your mates and you can sort of like, it's easier to make a day out of it. So it's why, as you said, I think that, that maybe doing a, a subscription pass is a better thing because literally my, my only alternative is you go, obviously in America, they have, they don't have NFL games on a Saturday that is reserved for college football. And then once that the college season ends, then NFL games will then move on to Saturday once they're done and they have a, you know, a Thursday night game or Friday morning for UK viewers. They have Saturday night, uh, Sunday night football, uh, uh, sort of Monday night football there. And it made me go, well, if is it possible that you go, we've been the traditional 3pm kickoff in the Premier League? Because but then I was thinking, but then you've still got games to make up. And then you go, then there's more games to put on a Friday. There's maybe more games to put on. As we saw yesterday, Man United, a Saturday 8pm kickoff is probably even more later games. There's not, like, if you try and fix one problem, you just create more problems. So it's kind of, as said with you, I think the way to go about this, there's got to be, a, you know, there's got to be a probably like a, a pass or something for, for just individual clubs. But then obviously, I guess then, you know, I guess is there, you get the fight back from sort of your big corporations like Sky or whatever, because then they would go, well, then our sports package is less valuable because, you know, and, and all these people. So it, I think it's just going to be a really difficult situation, but it's one that essentially I just feel the longer it doesn't really get addressed or there's not a solution tried to be made. I just feel the more, I guess, the problem will increase, the more you will hear about, you know, the Premier League complaining about piracy, etc. to which I ultimately have very little sympathy for them uh, because of the situation they've made. But yeah, there's not an ideal situation, but say hopefully hopefully at some point common sense can prevail and I say hopefully we do see a world where Chelsea are not playing Wolves on Christmas Eve because again, it's just kind of just a bit like soldier. And again, it's just one of those things Christmas Eve, like I said, people will see, you know, see family or whatever. They'll have like plans of the day. And yes, I know a lot of the time people make their plans around football, but I don't really want to sort of be making my plans around, you know, having to sort of thinking, oh, there's a game here. I've got to, you know, allocate this time for this. And as you mentioned, transport, et cetera, it, it's not ideal. And it's just a bit of a, there were some like, you know, positive things coming out. You say broadcast and week, the 2 p.m. games and I'll be televised uh, moving forward. But in sort of the next right cycle, but it is just frustrating that, you know, we get some progress and then still there's just something that goes you back. You just go, why? Football, why? And it just does make you sort of question sort of a lot of things about it. But right, that is going to wrap it up for this week of that Chelsea podcast. I hope you have enjoyed. But thank you for Daniel for coming on the first time this season. Hopefully the first of many. He's obviously was away at the start of the season in Australia. It's just about trying to get a, a good time to have him on. And hey, not a bad time to come on looking back at a, an encouraging build and really frustrating two-wheel draw with Arsenal. Daniel, before you go, give yourself one last plug where people can find you and all your stuff. Yeah, great to be back on. Uh, as usual, son of Chelsea, wherever you may be, YouTube, X. Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, that, that's the place. And you can also get my show as a podcast. Just search Son of Chelsea on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and you can find the show there as well. Yeah, nice one. Nice one. Um, as for us, uh, we are on X uh, at that Chelsea pod. We're on Instagram at that Chelsea pod. We're on all your usual podcast platform providers, um, Apple, Spotify, etc. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please feel free to leave a rating and review whenever I tweet, uh, tweet put out any likes and reposts are greatly appreciated. If you want to get in touch with the show via email, you can. That's thatchelseapod at gmail.com. That's all lower case. Um, there was, if anyone missed it, obviously in the international break, we did hear the news, Ed and Hazard tried. There was an episode that went out with Tom Curley in the international break. If you want, you know, if you're a bit disappointed with the football and hopefully, you know, this episode has been a bit fair therapeutic for you and you've, you've enjoyed it but if that's not enough then getting there's a 90 minute Eden Hazard fix as well waiting for you in your visa came out last week as well so if you want to check that out you can until the next episode everybody keep a blue flag flying high sports social podcast network